what we do for a living. This is recycling. Yeah. This stuff we get from the dump site. In the evening, we bring it here. We recycle. We have to separate green bottles one side. They must be separate so that when you go to sell it, they can recycle it according to the colors. So, this is how we live, in fact. We are only depending on such things. There's no way we, we can find a job. It's better to help government recycling like this. Because there's no one who can do this. Welcome to The Plastosphere, the podcast on plastic, people and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. Plastic has been leaking into the environment for many decades, but it's only now that we realize to what extent and what the consequences may be. Where does it all come from? What does it do to us and our environment? And how can we stop it? That's what I want to explore in this podcast. When you hear the term waste management, what do you think about? I think of the trash in my home and in my yard and the garbage trucks humming outside my window to pick it up. I imagine they will take it to big and modern places to recycle or burn it. That's what it looks like where I live, in the city of Berlin in Germany. But a lot of the world's waste isn't taken care of by modern trucks, machines and advanced technology. In low-income countries, over 90% of all waste ends up in unregulated dumps or is burned in the open, a World Bank study has found. And this mismanaged waste pollutes the soils, rivers, air and oceans. It's quite staggering just how much trash we produce. Not only plastic, but many other things. The cities of the world produce over 2 billion tons of solid waste each year. And this might increase by another 70% in just a few decades. If the World Bank is right, we might produce so much trash in the year 2050 that it would equal the weight of 15,000 cruise ships. And this is just in one year. How can we take care of our waste and stop the flow of plastic into the environment? I recently had the chance to talk to two of the women who are really digging into this, Dr. Jenna Jambeck and her PhD student Amy Brooks from the University of Georgia. Hello. Just a minute. Hello. Hi. Jenna is an environmental engineer and waste management expert. She has led one of the most important estimates on ocean plastics. The researchers found that in 2010 alone, between 4 and 13 million tons of plastic were lost from coastlines and leaked into the oceans. Her research also shows that the issue is especially pressing in certain Asian countries. A disproportionate amount of plastic enters the oceans from there. This led her and Amy to Vietnam to study the situation there. I called them in their hotel room in Hanoi after a busy week of research to ask them what they had seen. Yeah, so there's a fair amount of mismanaged waste here. There's um, sort of a 
really rapid economic growth. So a lot of folks can now afford to go to coffee shops. There's a lot of single-use plastic through, um, let's say, a cup, a lid, and a straw. And then there, there's a large um, motorbike uh, culture here. Lots of people ride motorbikes because it's an easy way to get around. And so they'll even put this whole uh, cup, straw, lid in a plastic bag so that you can carry it on the motorbike. And, you know, honestly, just this the rapid increase in the the use of plastic and then sort of this consumerism, the, the waste management infrastructure just hasn't been able to keep up with that. According to research conducted by Jenna and her colleagues, Vietnam is one of the countries that loses the biggest amounts of plastic into the ocean. The top polluter is China, followed by Indonesia, the Philippines, and then Vietnam. It's the booming economies of Asia. Yes, one component of it is just the waste that's generated by all of this economic growth, um, which increases waste generation within the country and then not having full collection and management of that waste. Um, but that's one component. Now, uh, with the, the import ban in China, in some cases it's being stockpiled in the countries that we're exporting, but it's also now going to other countries like Vietnam. They've seen an increase in this importation of waste that used to be going to China. Waste has become a huge global enterprise. And so countries are trading it. Europe and North America, for example, have been exporting some of their low-grade plastic waste to China and other places in Asia. This imported waste adds to the growing piles of trash in these countries. Jenna's PhD student, Amy Brooks, led the study. We used United Nations commodity trade data for different polymers of plastic um, and we used country-based data using quantities and trade value. Um, and what we found is that overwhelmingly it's high-income wealthy nations that are sending their plastic waste to other nations that may or may not actually have the waste management infrastructure to properly manage that waste. Amy told me that 90% of this waste is comprised of single-use plastic, polymers that are typically used for throwaway items. A lot of this went to China in the past. But as the impact on health and the environment became clearer, China changed its policy. The world's biggest plastic waste importer implemented a ban called the National Sword. This policy completely disrupted the market, as China stopped importing all non-industrial plastic waste. Amy and Jenna have calculated that this ban would affect over 100 million tons of plastic until 2030. Where will this trash go to now? One answer might be Vietnam. We came across some plastic film um, sorting, women that were sorting plastic film bales and found labels that were from international companies. And so we, they told us that they had gotten the plastic waste from imported um, or from a port on the coast here. And so it was really powerful for me after having written the import paper to see actual plastic waste here being sorted by hand um, in conditions that weren't necessarily um, safe, very little protective gear. Um, and seeing the women there, of course, was very powerful too. And one thing that we've been talking about a lot here is how we can move forward with solutions for this issue that um, will accommodate some of the social and cultural 
um, potential costs from the solutions, if that makes sense. So we know that a lot of plastic enters the oceans from Asia. We know that this region is experiencing an economic boom. We also know that its waste management systems lag behind. So do these countries just need to modernize their infrastructure so that it works like it does in the richer economies? Jenna and Amy got to take a look at the current way the waste management system works in Vietnam. There's a few sectors that are sort of outside the government within Ho Chi Minh City. There's the independent waste collector uh, sector, and they are paid directly by uh, homeowners to collect the waste in the back streets of Ho Chi Minh City, where the streets are very narrow and the municipal uh, vehicles can't get down. So um, they're paid directly from the homeowners. They usually work every single day eight hours a day collecting the waste. Um, they'll take out items that are recyclable and sort of stockpile those until they have enough to sell and make some more money. So they kind of supplement their income from the homeowner um, by selling recyclables as well because each homeowner pays um, not even, it's, it's less than a dollar per month for this every single day waste collection from these independent collectors. Outside of that, there's also an informal waste sector within the city, and those um, are usually comprised of waste pickers. And so those are people who sometimes negotiate directly with businesses um, and also pick through trash that is, is put in sort of public places for them to take recyclables and then sell them uh, to the junk shops that are mostly outside the city. Jenna and Amy are now working with several NGOs, non-governmental organizations within Vietnam that focus on solid waste management. The researchers want to help better document the independent waste collectors who work in Ho Chi Minh City. It's estimated that they take care of as much as 65 to 70 percent of the waste within that city. Jenna told me that they are fairly unrecognized for the work that they do probably, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people around the world certainly make their living from um, these informal sectors, uh, waste being one of them. And so I think it's very important when you look at solutions that you um, look at incorporating them and, and hearing from them directly on, on what, how they foresee um, their livelihood continuing. But, you know, in many cases, these folks are working in conditions that are not um, they're not, you know, they, the health and safety protections are not there. The environmental protections are not there. So if we could improve that, um, you know, that could go a long way formalizing the sector, but in a way that is sensitive to their economic livelihood. Jenna and Amy made me aware of this human dimension of waste and plastic. It's hard to say for sure how many people depend on waste as their income. It could be up to 15 or 20 million people worldwide and economically impact even more. Vigo is a network that supports workers in the informal sector. To learn more, I called their expert on waste, Sonia Maria Diaz. She lives in Belo Horizonte in Brazil, where plastic pollution is also a big issue. Yeah, you can see it in our, you know, we have a, a main river that uh, runs through the city and uh, you can see it, people dumping uh, plastic uh, waste uh, on the river and also, you know, on the streets. It, it's a 
It's a pervasive uh, problem. Belo Horizonte is a planned city of almost 6 million residents with a pretty good infrastructure. But in the 1980s, Sonia started working in the shanty towns where the poor people lived. The local government had set up a program to improve the urban infrastructure there. They sent a team of engineers, architects and sociologists like Sonia to look at the issues there. One of them was waste. At that time, we had a very good coverage of door-to-door -door collection of domestic waste in the formal city. Okay, But in the shanty towns, we only had containers at certain areas, in certain areas which uh, the shanty town residents had to come from their houses and uh, Uh, dispose their waste in these containers. So most often, because collection was not done door to door in the shanty towns, they just uh, threw waste anywhere, you know, in the cliffs, in the streets. So it was a terrible situation back then. For Sonia, working in the shanty town was an eye opener. She had studied sociology, but never really known what her purpose was. Now she had found her calling, garbology the social study of garbage. Waste is such a fascinating issue because you can, you, know, you, you deal with, you know, issues that apparently they are technical, but there is a lot of uh, class issues that comes with it. You know, uh, why, you know, people live in a given area in which they don't, they don't have access to urban services, why, Uh, uh, some people uh, need to collect recyclables to earn a living. So it, I became more and more involved uh, with um, waste in general. And it took me just a while until I kind of spotted those people who really earned their livelihoods by collecting what we had cast, cast away, you know, as waste. They could make, you know, they could repurpose and give a different uh, life to the materials, the recyclables that were thrown away. It was the waste pickers who helped keep the cities clean. But their life was hard. They were marginalized, stigmatized, chased off the streets and threatened by the police. They had no infrastructure. Until, in the late 1980s, a movement started. A group of waste pickers began to organize. Among them was Donna Geralda. She, she started uh, working uh, in the streets at the age of, uh, I think she was 15 or 16, and she was illiterate at the time. And she had, you know, at a certain point, she had nine children that she had to feed, and she uh, worked collecting recyclables. And she was subject to, to the persecution of the police. But by 1988, uh, she got involved with an NGO called Pastoral de Rua uh, that was helping waste pickers in my city to get organized and together with Ten other uh, um, informal recyclers, they created the first 
Way Speaker Association uh, in Belo Horizonte and the second uh, in Brazil. And they squatted a derelict area and they organized many public demonstrations to uh, attract attention of uh, uh, the citizens and attract attention of the, the, the municipality that they were providing, you know, a valuable uh, work for the city. Just like in Belo Horizonte, waste pickers have organized in cities around the world, from Bogotá to Buenos Aires and the Indian city of Pune. And they have been able to build bridges with the government to establish collaborations between the informal and formal waste sectors. In the case of Bogotá, the waste pickers' right to inclusion in city planning was even recognized by the Constitutional Court. But the workers' conditions are still difficult. You know, they live in usually in informal settlements with no access of uh, sometimes electricity, uh, good uh, roads, and they the only uh, work they have access to is collection of uh, recyclables. This is a, a situation that the, it happens everywhere. You know, most waste pickers, you know, they face uh, numerous challenges. Uh, they, most of them, they are illiterate. Some of them might be working in open dumps in terrible conditions and some being run by vehicles because uh, if you work in an open dump, you are working in an environment that it's uh, absolutely, you know, dangerous. And the conditions waste pickers face, it's really uh, harsh everywhere in the world. Sonia says one of the biggest risks waste pickers face is the privatization of the waste management sector, when their means for making a living are taken away. Cairo, it's a very good example. They actually privatized uh, the waste collection uh, in, in Cairo and they actually drove away, you know, thousands of Zabalins who were doing an efficient collection of uh, uh, recyclables. So this is happening everywhere. If you go to Bogota, they try to privatize uh, the uh, collection of uh, waste in, in 10 years ago and not and ignoring Uh, the recyclers that had been doing this work. And if you go, it's, it's happening everywhere, you know, apart from a few cities that are trying to uh, come up with a concept and, in, and uh, the practice of inclusive recycling, uh, privatization is, um, is one of the biggest uh, threats that, that we have. Together with other researchers, Sonia is now working on studies that can show the contribution these workers are making. In a project called Coastal Cities, they want to quantify how much greenhouse gases are saved by their work. But wait, if the waste pickers are already doing such a great job and all that is needed is to improve their conditions and connect them with the formal system, then why is so much plastic still leaking into the environment? Generally, metal waste are more valuable, you know, uh, because you get better price. And plastics, they pose, you know, they they are 
3% of uh, the waste in general and you have different uh, you have different materials within uh, within plastic which sometimes for waste pickers are not really uh, are not very valuable you know for collection and so it it is part of what you know I mean they have it is the majority of the waste pickers they are going to keep collecting plastic but I don't think it's the most valuable in terms of uh, economic um, gains. Which brings us back to what was once lauded as the benefit of plastic. It's so versatile and so, so cheap. Which is great for new products, but a problem for disposal. Why not just throw something away when you can't really tell what it is and it's not worth much anyways? So what to do? Can we find a way to give our plastic waste a higher value? First attempts are being made right now with so-called plastic banks and waste banks around the world. People who collect trash can exchange it for goods or money. The collectors can even get a bank account to start saving up money for the future. Could this be a way to tackle pollution and poverty at the same time? I really wonder if that works, but need to investigate that further. What I learned through my interviews with Jenna, Amy and Sonia is that there are millions of people around the world making a living off of the world's waste. But especially in Asia, it looks like they can't keep up with the growing heaps of trash. After importing the throwaway culture of the West, do these countries now also need shiny new technology to manage the trash? It sounds like an easy solution, but what would the modernization of waste management mean for the livelihoods of informal recyclers and waste pickers? We will probably need new kinds of approaches, solutions that consider the cultural context and include the working poor, which could really make a difference. It's like, you know, you create the conditions for cross-generational improvement. If you, you know, I can't look back uh, because I've been working in my city with waste pickers since uh, 1980s, okay? And I can see the improvement uh, that you can see that the children of the waste pickers that they started to work with back in the 80s, some of them are doing something actually different today because uh, as conditions for their fathers improved you know uh, more opportunities were given to their children you know outside the waste work or they are now those that are doing administrative work you know their kids are doing the IT work, you know, administrative work of the cooperatives. The integration and organization of waste workers can lift their chances and quality of life. And maybe one day, the kids and grandchildren of these waste administrators could be able to leave the waste sector altogether, sometime in the future, when our mountain of trash has stopped to grow and started to shrink. 
So this is how we live, in fact. You know, we need to consume less. We need to uh, reduce waste uh, uh, production. And at the end of the day, of course, this will mean, you know, given that if we are to be more consciously, environmentally minded, this will decrease, you know, the uh, the recyclables that waste pickers make a living off. And we will have to be better in terms of of building capacity for waste pickers to enter new niches. There's a huge global transformation ahead of us as we are trying to create a sustainable society for the next generations. It's an enormous challenge, which includes tackling environmental as well as social issues. How can we solve the plastic pollution problem and not cause a social one? That is the big question. This was The Plastosphere with Dr. Jana Jambeck and Amy Brooks from the University of Georgia and Sonia Maria Diaz of Figo, a network focused on securing livelihoods for the working poor in the informal economy. Many thanks to them for taking time in their busy schedules to talk to me. The first words in this podcast were spoken by Christoph, a waste worker from Johannesburg in South Africa. The recording is taken from a video on the Wigo YouTube channel. My name is Anja Krieger, and the music was composed by Dorian Roy and Blue Dot Sessions. I'd also like to thank Ines Blasius, Luisa Beck, and Daniela Cheslow for their thoughtful feedback on various versions of this episode. Karl Urban edited the German version over on riffreporter.de. Thank you, Karl. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to send me any questions or comments via email or Twitter at PlastospherePod. You can support my independent production on Patreon or Riff Reporter and find all links in the show notes. I hope you tune in for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, refuse, reduce, reuse and recycle. <laughs> <laughs>